The educator should talk about all these things, not just verbally, but he or she must feel the world of nature and the world of man. They are interrelated. Man cannot escape from that. When he destroys nature, he destroys himself. When he kills another, he is killing himself. The enemy is not the other, but you. To live in such harmony with nature, with the world, naturally brings about a different world. Krishnamurti. Beyond politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the ageless wisdom. It's the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured, yet will not be denied. This podcast from Michael Benner's Wisdom of the Soul class features weekly lessons in metaphysics, mysticism, and esoteric philosophy. Those who attend live and free of charge on Zoom may also participate in group meditation and Q&A. Register for our newsletter at michaelbenner.com. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Benner. Hey everybody, good morning and welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School and our Wisdom of the Soul class for, uh, what is today? Sunday, May 7 of 2023. Great class for you today. The topic is Echo Spirituality. It may even be a new term for you. I have, and many others have, used the ecosystem and the uh, concern about the environment as a parallel or an allegory for spirituality for many, many years, because it's perfectly obvious when you look at the ecosystem, the way diversity is an integral part of holism. And while it seems paradoxical, that for something to be whole, it has to have many unique parts. The environment or the ecosystem is a perfect example of that. The interreliance and interdependence of all these uh, myriad of life forms, plant and animal, and their relationship to the mineral kingdom is so remarkable that the unity and the harmony comes out of this need for diversity. And so we can pick up a little bit on where we left off last week, our discussion of the conscious and unconscious mind, and step it up to a discussion of, in the absolute sense, the one mind, the universal mind, the cosmic mind, so to speak, the Godhead, first cause, prime mover, the absolute as of uh, an enormous unified electromagnetic field of energy, which uh, religiously oriented metaphysical people call spirit or consciousness. It's all energy, right? This is where we bridge esoteric philosophy, quantum physics, and basic fundamental laws of, of physics is uh, energy is spirit and it's consciousness. And consciousness behaves like all other forms of energy, whether it's heat or light or uh, nuclear radiation. It's energy. 
There's physical energy, there's metaphysical energy, and the latter, the metaphysical, we refer to as spirit. So there's one magnetic energy field that uh, religious people call God, and again, philosophy, maybe the absolute prime mover, the source. And it's undifferentiated, but then it gets differentiated or individuated so that each of us gets a little fragment of that. And before we do the meditation, let me just say this much about it, that this is very much like radio. If you think about tuning the dial on, a, on an old radio, most of you, I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure, remember radio. If you tune that dial from one end to the other, AM or FM, there are many radio stations. Besides what your AM or FM radio would receive, there are shortwave radio stations and uh, amateur radio operators and uh, international shortwave stations operated by governments and nations around the world. There's, uh, you know, walkie-talkies and uh, any wireless cell phones is radio. We don't think of cell phones as radio, but I have radio receivers that receive cell phones. Uh, that's all they are. Interestingly, about 20 years ago, scanners that received cell phone frequencies were outlawed. And so the only ones that are around are either bootlegged or um, left over from the old days. But it's all radio, right? And so the question is, if this entire electromagnetic spectrum has these hundreds or even thousands of radio signals on it, what allows them to be discrete? Why don't all these radio stations get mixed up? And uh, it's because each has a different frequency. Sometimes on the AM dial, especially late at night, if propagation is right, you may hear two stations at the same time on the same frequency. That's just because they are, in fact, assigned the same frequency. And usually they're far enough away that the signals don't mix. But um, if you consider then this as an allegory for the way universal or cosmic consciousness extends itself, becomes differentiated, and uh, each of us has a fragment of the one mind, and it is accessible through the unconscious mind. Wisdom of the soul is all about listening to the voice of the soul and contacting your higher self. Psychedelic experiences. Your awareness becomes expanded to such an extent that your brain can't really handle it. So consider it as being like radio. Each of us, if we think of ourselves as energy rather than matter, has our own frequency, right? We have not only fingerprint evidence and DNA proof of our individuality, but as energy beings, as spiritual beings, we each have our own frequency. And so in that way, this paradox of the one and the many, of the universe being this cohesive, unified, electromagnetic cloud or ocean or field of energy can carry all these different frequencies and they don't get mixed up. There is ESP, of course, and telepathy and clairvoyance or remote viewing and precognition and such. 
Jung's collective unconscious. And uh, I don't want to ramble on too much about this, other than to say, after our opening meditation, we're going to use the ecosystem in the environment as a further allegory for this, so that we can better understand this enigma of the one in the many. How can we all be part of one thing and yet each be unique and get over that hurdle of, well, they're different. They even seem to be opposite. So how could they both be true? Well, they can be. <laughs> you know, how could a coin have two sides or a pair of glasses be one thing? A pair of pants, a pair of gloves is one thing, right? So uh, we'll work through that. It's a very important concept. It's really basic to metaphysics to be able to straddle that fence and to understand the truth in both of these views, that we're all part of one thing. There's just one of us here. And yet we do extend ourselves like a myriad of radio stations into these individual forms, and both things are true. Remember we talked a few weeks ago about the two-truth doctrine. You may want to Google that sometime, the two-truth doctrine, the absolute and the relative, not either or, the absolute and the relative, the objective and the subjective. And while a little mind-boggling at first, when you work that clay and soften it up a little bit, get your brain around it, wow, it's so cool. Because you can look like we will today at nature, at a single tree, at a single blade of grass, and see the universe in it. Wasn't it William Blake that had a line about the universe in a grain of sand? What does that mean? Well, is the ocean not in the drop, right? What about the ocean is not in the drop? The drop appears to be separate from the ocean. The ocean is not separate from the drop. Okay, with that as a foundation, let's do our opening meditation. So get comfortable in your chairs or uh, wherever you may be seated, sofa, Cross-legged on your bed, meditation pillow. And three, eyes open, wide awake. Open your eyes now. Wide awake, back in the room. Take a big breath. And as you exhale, stretch a little bit. Maybe stomp your feet gently on the floor. Get back into your body, feeling fine, feeling better than before. Feeling better than before. Good. I want to do a little inventory with you guys. And if you want to write these responses down, if you have something to write on, I'm going to ask you 12 questions. And I want you to rate your response on a standard five-point scale where one is strongly disagree Two is disagree somewhat. Three is neither agree nor disagree. I'm sort of neutral. Three is 50-50. I don't know. Four would be agree somewhat. Yeah, to some degree I agree. And then five is strongly agree. All right? 
So one strongly disagree to five strongly agree. Three is neutral. And uh, I'll just go through these 12 statements. And you can write down if you'd like. Because we're going to add up the score at the end and see where you stand. No right or wrong to this. It's just an inventory. This is not about right answers and wrong answers, okay? Just to help you understand yourself better. And I think the questions are sort of cool. They come from a study that was done at the University of British Columbia about eco-spirituality and human beings rediscovering their spiritual nature through physical nature. So here's number one. You ready? Do you agree, disagree, or are you somewhere in the middle? Jungles experience moods. Jungles experience moods. Strongly disagree, two disagree somewhat, three sort of on the fence either way, four agree somewhat, five strongly agree. Jungles experience moods. Number two, deserts have their own emotions. Strongly disagree, neutral, five strongly agree. Deserts have their own emotions. Number three, the sky has personalities. These are questions that, whether you agree or disagree, and to what extent, this is more about intuition and feeling than logic. This is not reasoning, obviously. What do you think? The sky has personalities. Number four, forests can have thoughts. Strongly disagree. One to five strongly agree. Forests can have thoughts. Number five, I feel intense wonder toward nature. I feel intense wonder towards nature. Agree, neutral, disagree. Number six, when I am in nature, I feel a sense of awe. Agree or disagree? Number seven, sometimes I am overcome with the beauty of nature. Sometimes I am overcome with the beauty of nature. Strongly disagree to strongly agree, one to five. Number eight, there is nothing like the feeling of being in nature. Nothing compares, nothing like the feeling of being in nature. Agree or disagree, one to five. Number nine, there is a spiritual connection between human beings and the natural environment. 
there is a spiritual connection between human beings and the natural environment. Agree or disagree? And to what extent? Number 10, there is sacredness in nature. Strongly disagree one, strongly agree five. One to five, there is sacredness in nature. Just two more. Number 11, everything in the natural world is spiritually interconnected. Agree or disagree? Everything in the natural world is spiritually interconnected. And 12, nature is a spiritual resource. Nature is a spiritual resource. We know that there are natural resources. We use that term, natural resources. And uh, most people, if you ask them, well, what are our natural resources? They might say, oh, you mean like water or minerals, like gold and, or, or diamonds and gems and Metals like gold and silver and, you know, esoteric metals, lithium and cesium and plutonium, these are resources. But beyond looking at nature as resources to be exploited for our benefit, what if we look at nature as a sacred temple? And that we are part of nature, and nature is part of us. And if we hurt nature, we hurt ourselves. In fact, I want to read you a little short essay by Krishnamurti about that today. But why don't you add those 12 numbers up? If you haven't already, just go ahead and add those 12 responses up. So if you scored strongly disagree on all of those, they'd add up to 12. If you were in strong agreement with all 12, you'd get 60. So somewhere between 12 and 60 is your score. And again, not right or wrong, but just how in tune are you with nature? And I think my next question for you would be, how much do you miss it? I presume most of you are in cities. Could be anywhere in the world, but it's likely wherever you are, you're in a city. And uh, we have trees, right? And maybe there are city parks. That's nice. Maybe you have flowers or a vegetable garden in your yard. Where we live, we have cactus. <laughs> but they're beautiful. They have flowers and there's apples that fall off our cactus. 
And the flowers attract bees and other insects and moths and birds and bats. And they pollinate. The birds often eat the fruit that come from the pollinated flowers and carry the seeds for hundreds of yards or even miles and then excrete the seed along with a little fertilizer packet. Some seeds have evolved to be carried upon the wind long distances. Quite remarkable the way nature evolves and propagates itself. We are an extension of that. The earliest plants, hundreds of millions of years ago, evolved from the mineral kingdom, drawing upon the various minerals for the nutrients that they need, and then drawing upon the light and the warmth of the sun and water to become plants. I have seen in my wandering in the desert cactus growing out of the side of a rock. No soil at all. Quite miraculous. Rooted in a rock, in the side of a rock. That's, that's sturdy, that's hardy. <laughs> Cause me to stop, take a picture, ponder that. And so as the animals began to evolve, they ate the plants, which drew upon the mineral kingdom. And then as the animals evolved from the lizards and the dinosaurs, the reptiles, uh, to the mammals and the primates, there was a point a few million years ago, just a few million years ago, two, three million years ago, not that long ago, the human beings swung down out of the trees. And uh, at last count, I think we're up to 10 or 11 species of human beings. All but one are extinct. And that's the Homo sapien. But we use the animals, we eat the animals, which eat the plants that draw upon the mineral kingdom. And surely you see the interreliance. You see the connection. But it's more than a food chain. There is a uh, symbiosis. Do you know that word? An interreliance, an interdependence. There are species of fish, for example. I'm just pulling off the top of my head. There are species of fish that live and depend upon cleaning the teeth of sharks. That's what they do. There are countless examples, thousands and thousands of examples of animals relying on other animals in such a way that both species benefit from the presence of the other. 
I remember a fellow calling my talk show years and years ago, and uh, he was, uh, I don't know, some sort of conservative, I guess he thought he was, some pro-corporate big business thinker, and he challenged me. He said, Hoover Dam is no different than a Beaver Dam. And I said, you're not serious. And he said, yeah, it's just Hoover Dam is bigger, but why do you hippies all think big dams destroy the environment? Doesn't a beaver dam destroy the environment? And I said, well, besides the scale involved, Hoover Dam went up in like 10 years. Beaver dams have happened over millions of years. And so all of the plants and animals, the fishes, uh, the other critters that need the water and the fish and the water, they've all evolved slowly over that time as the beaver has evolved. And so there is this interlocking, inner dependence, this interreliance, this symbiosis where a natural evolution or unfolding, a natural growth and change promotes mutual benefit. And those that don't change die, become extinct, which is the future we face. Nature will go on. If humanity kills itself, if we destroy ourselves, if we lose the right to exist, because of our foolishness. Nature will survive. You don't have to worry about saving the planet, per se. It'll go on without us. It'll recover from global warming. Hell, look what happened during the pandemic when everybody went on lockdown. And uh, (laughs) I remember the picture of the 405 freeway in Los Angeles, completely empty in the middle of the afternoon. It was unbelievable. It was a a cover shot of the 405 where it crosses the 10 on the west side of town, and there was not a car to be seen anywhere in the middle of the day. Do you know what happened to the air quality? Do you remember the news reports how the air quality within a day or two improved significantly? And people were talking about animals coming out. Bears and mountain lions and raccoons and badgers and all kinds of critters were coming down out of the hills within a day or two, (laughs) just because people freaked out and stopped driving. There were a couple of days there where nobody went anyplace. We were just paralyzed by fear. Nature will recover global warming, whatever you do to it, ozone levels, lack of oxygen, nature will go on. Other species will rise up. We have to qualify for our existence. I want to read along these lines uh, a short little essay from Krishnamurti, the great theosophist. He spent most of his life in Ojai, California. Most of you are Californians. If you've ever been to Ojai, 
It's a great theosophical center. There's a place there called Meditation Mount that's associated with theosophy and Krishnamurti. Um, there's also an amazing old library called Krotona with a K. Krotona, the place just radiates this magic if you go into the place. It's like, wow. You should check it out sometime. It's a beautiful area of Southern California. And uh, Krishnamurti lived there for much of his life and said it reminded him of where he grew up in India. So this is a brief little essay I want to share with you that uh, I think this is about 20, maybe 30 years old. And the essay is titled, If You Hurt Nature, You Are Hurting Yourself. And I'm just going to read through this. Begins, what is nature? There's a great deal of talk and endeavor to protect nature, the animals, the birds, the whales, and dolphins, to clean the polluted rivers, lakes, fields, and so on. Nature is not put together by thought, as religion and belief are. Nature is the tiger, that extraordinary animal with its energy and great sense of power. Nature is the solitary tree in the field, the meadow and the grove. It is the squirrel shyly hiding behind a bough. Nature is the ant, the bee, and all the living things of the earth. Nature is the river, not a particular river, whether the Ganges, the Thames, or the Mississippi. Nature is those mountains, snow-clad, with dark blue valleys and a range of hills meeting the sea. The universe is part of nature. One must have a feeling for all this, not destroy it. Nature is part of our life. We grew out of a seed, the earth, and we are part of all that but we are rapidly losing the sense that we are animals like the others. Can you have a feeling for a tree? Look at it, see the beauty of it, listen to the sound that it makes. Can you be sensitive to the little plant, a little weed, to that creeper growing up the wall, to the light on the leaves and the many shadows? One must be aware of all of this and have that sense of communion with nature around you. You may live in a town, but you do have trees here and there, and a flower in the next garden, though it may be ill-kept, crowded with weeds. But look at it. Feel that you are part of all of that, part of all living things. If you hurt nature, you are hurting yourself. One knows all this has been said before in different ways. We don't seem to pay much attention. Is it that we are so caught up in our own network of problems, our desires, our urge of pleasure and, and pain, that we never look around, that we never watch the moon? Well, watch it. Watch with all your eyes and ears, even your sense of smell. Watch. 
Look as though you are looking for the first time. If you can do that, you see for the first time that tree, that bush, that blade of grass. Then you can see your teacher, your mother or father, your brother or sister for the first time. There is an extraordinary feeling about that. The wonder, the strangeness, the miracle of a fresh morning that has never been before and never will be again. Be in communion with nature, not verbally caught up in the description of it, but be part of it. Be aware. Feel that you belong to all of that. Be able to have love for all of that, to admire a deer, the lizard on the wall, that broken branch lying on the ground. Look at the evening star or the new moon without the world, without merely saying, oh, how beautiful, how beautiful it is, and then turning your back on it, attracted by something else. But watch that single star and new delicate moon, as though for the first time. If there is such communion between you and nature, you can commune with man, with the boy sitting next to you, with your educator or your parents. We have lost all sense of relationship in which there is not only a verbal statement of affection and concern, but also the sense of communion, which is not verbal. It is a sense that we are all together, that we are all human beings, not divided, not broken up, not belonging to any group or race or some idealistic concept, but that we are all human beings living on this extraordinary, beautiful earth. Have you ever woken up in the morning and looked out the window or gone out onto the terrace and looked at the trees and the spring dawn. Live with it. Listen to all the sound, to the whispers, the slight breeze among the leaves. See the light on that leaf and watch the sun coming over the hill, over the meadow. And the dry river or that animal grazing, those sheep across the hill, watch them. Look at them with a sense of affection and care that you do not want to hurt a thing. When you have such communion with nature, your relationship with another becomes simple, clear, and without conflict. The educator should talk about all these things, not just verbally, but he or she must feel the world of nature and the world of man. They are interrelated. Man cannot escape from that. When he destroys nature, he destroys himself. When he kills another, he is killing himself. The enemy is not the other, but you. To live in such harmony with nature, with the world, naturally brings about a different world. Krishnamurti. That obviously was addressed to teachers, but aren't we all uh, teachers? Wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't we like to have 
greater influence. Let's that everyone and everything around us is our teacher, but the more you understand about life, the more you have to teach. Plus, I love this line. <laughs> I've always liked this phrase. He or she who teaches learns twice. There's nothing like teaching to accelerate learning. Because you have to explain what you thought you knew. <laughs> you have to find the words for it. It's one of the reasons I enjoy doing this class. And I come from a family of teachers. All right, so uh, echo spirituality, the way in which the environment, the ecosystem, demonstrates the seeming paradox of the one in the many, how it takes great, grand diversity and an appreciation of it for there to be the whole or the one. What does the word holy mean? Holy, holism. It's complete. It's the total. That's what holy means. Sacred, all that is. So if the great body of all that is, the universe is sacred in any way at all, if it's holy, then everything in it must also be sacred. And obviously we're not treating it that way. We don't think of the oil well as sacred. We don't think of the, the mines, the deep caverns in New Mexico where nuclear waste is stored for the 40,000 years it'll take to decay as sacred. We don't behave like sacred people. We behave as if we worship technology. Oddly, the indigenous people of this continent, and I trust the world as well, in the pre-industrial times, those who live close to the land recognized its sacred nature. And uh, when America was invaded by Europeans, or they like to say discovered, not a single stream was polluted. There was no litter. The air was not poison or toxic. Is it really worth the trade-out? And do we have to go back to pre-industrial times? Or could we find a balance? See, I think we can. I think we can have high-tech and appropriate tech and still recognize our inherent nature connected to all things. What's more spiritual? and recognizing that all seemingly separate things are one. <laughs>